Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we ask if Italy's Matteo Renzi is emerging as a challenger to Angela Merkel's dominant position among European leaders. And we hear from Sierra Leone about the impact across West Africa of an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus. But we begin in Israel, where the discovery of the bodies of three Israeli teenagers kidnapped in the West Bank has united the country in grief and anger. The Israeli authorities are blaming the Palestinian group Hamas for the murders and have vowed retribution. And Israel launched more than 30 airstrikes in the Gaza Strip within hours of announcing that the bodies had been found. The United Nations, the European Union and the United States have called for restraint on both sides, but some members of Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet want a tougher response. I'm joined now from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss. Mark, these three teenagers had been missing for two weeks before their bodies were found. What do we know now about what happened to them? Well, from the uh, immediate um, information that was released to the media, we were told that one of the uh, three managed to uh, phone uh, the um, emergency security uh, center uh, in, in the area of the West Bank from where he was kidnapped and managed to whisper down the phone that uh, we've been kidnapped. Um, however, um, the Israeli police um, failed to act quickly on that phone call, and it was only the following morning uh, that uh, they put one and one together when um, the three families reported their sons missing, hadn't come home, and they realized the call was a genuine call and not a fake, it was thought. So the security forces lost vital hours in the first uh, um, the first day after the kidnapping, which could have helped them uh, locate uh, much more quickly both uh, the three uh, kidnapped uh, youths and the, um, the, the kidnappers themselves. Uh, it's since been revealed that um, the Israeli security forces believe the three were bundled into a car and shot uh, very quickly uh, after the kidnapping, possibly because of that phone call I've just talked about. Uh, it's possible that the uh, kidnappers panicked, realized that uh, the Israeli, uh, because of the phone call, that the Israeli uh, army would soon be on their tracks and just shot the youths. It's also possible that they intended from the very beginning uh, uh, to, shoot the, to shoot the youths. So we may, have, we may actually be faced with uh, more of a murder than a kidnapping situation. I, and uh, uh, the, kidnapping the car, the car. Sorry. Sorry, Mark, kidnappings are, uh, are not unprecedented in the West Bank or in Gaza. And, and traditionally, uh, more conventionally, they have been used as a bargaining chip to, get, to gain the release of Palestinian prisoners. So in, this, in that sense, this particular incident would have been quite unusual. Is that right? Well, the Hamas leadership uh, are, are constantly called for their activists on the ground, the militants, to carry out kidnappings. Uh, for the exact reason you just stated, um, to hold uh, the Israelis as bargaining chips for the release uh, of uh, the prisoners held in Israeli jails. This has been a very successful, it's been a rare occurrence, but a successful one in the past. Israel, uh, a few years ago, released more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners in return for an Israeli soldier who was kidnapped and held in the Gaza Strip. Uh, there have been no less than about 50 uh, attempted kidnappings over the last couple of years, all of them thwarted uh, by the Israeli security uh, services. This one uh, was an incident, the, the one that got away, if you like, a successful from the 
from the kidnappers' point of view, a successful operation. Now, Hamas has not admitted responsibility for these murders, but two Hamas militants have been identified by the Israeli authorities as the culprits. What do we know about these two people and what do we know about their relationship with Hamas? Um, the day after the kidnapping, the Israeli uh, intelligence already pinpointed these two uh, Hamas militants from the area of Hebron, people who'd been in the past in Israeli jails uh, as the kidnappers. Uh, as far as Israel is concerned, there is no doubt that these two men are responsible. They are still at large. Uh, there is a massive manhunt in the West Bank uh, searching for them. Um, they still haven't been found. Uh, we must remember that the Hamas military wing in the West Bank operates similar, in a similar fashion to al-Qaeda. They tend to work in small, isolated cells uh, on a local level, do not necessarily receive direct orders uh, from the Hamas leadership, either uh, in the West Bank, Gaza, or from abroad. And they tend to uh, seize on local uh, opportunities if and when they arise. And it's believed that this is what happened here. The people clearly knew the area. They knew the patterns of where settlers and uh, Jewish residents would be hitching uh, and when it would probably be best to carry out the operation. How has the Israeli Republic reacted to this unfolding story and the tragic news that was revealed this week? Uh, it, it's been a gripping um, story with, a, with an incredibly sad ending, if you like, uh, from the Israeli point of view. Uh, the, the, the country did come together to, to a certain extent, uh, hoping uh, and praying uh, that the would, these, these three boys would be found uh, alive. Uh, although it was quite clear, I think, to most people that uh, as the days went by, the, the, uh, the odds of um, finding the, the, the three, the three uh, teens alive was uh, very slim, uh, in, in fact, close to zero. And yesterday, when, when it was uh, uh, revealed that the bodies had been found, I don't think anyone was really surprised, actually. Uh, now, Israel immediately launched airstrikes on the Gaza Strip and has vowed retribution. Is this the end of the military response, or can we expect more? This remains to be seen. The Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that Hamas uh, is to blame and Hamas will pay. What he exactly means by that, um, time will tell. There are a whole range of options, of course, uh, available uh, to the Israeli leadership from declaring all-out war and reinvading the Gaza Strip and toppling the Hamas regime there, from uh, lesser options, although still uh, quite far-reaching, such as maybe targeting the Hamas political leaders and renewing Israel's old policy of uh, targeted assassinations. Israel could also maybe deport uh, Hamas activists from the West Bank to the Gaza Strip or elsewhere. Um, there is a clamor, certainly amongst the right-wing elements in the government and amongst uh, many of the public who are very angry at this juncture, um, for uh, some kind of policy along these lines. But remember that Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, although he maybe has an image of a hawk abroad, he does, is not a politician that likes to take unnecessary risks and is also uh, adverse to uh, military advent uh, adventures. So. I think an all-out war against uh, Hamas in Gaza or even um, a major military operation is probably uh, not likely at this juncture. Remember as well that Hamas uh, militants in the Gaza Strip have um, hundreds of rockets that can reach 
the greater Tel Aviv area. So any major Israeli military offensive would probably result in uh, rockets falling uh, throughout central Israel, not something uh, an Israeli leader would um, want and um, would undertake uh, without some very serious consideration. Mark, Hamas recently entered into a unity government with the other main Palestinian faction, Fatah. Where do these killings leave that alliance? Do, will they have any impact at all? That's the key political question at the moment, I think. Certainly from the Israeli perspective, um, Israel has been pressing from day one the, to Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to end the recent alliance with um, Hamas saying that you cannot uh, advocate peace on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, form a unity government with a group that kidnaps and kills uh, Israeli civilians. Um, this is the re uh, an ending of this alliance is what Israel would like to see. President Abbas spoke very publicly against the kidnappings in, in a mood that surprised many on the Palestinian street. Uh, he condemned it in clear-cut terms, um, and he indicated or he hinted that there would be a... Um, ramifications if it indeed is proven beyond doubt that Hamas was behind the kidnapping. Um, it remains to be seen if he will go that far and cancel the reconciliation agreement. Uh, and that's another consideration, by the way, in the Israeli military response. Israel would not want to carry out collective punishments against the po Palestinian population that would only increase the popularity of Hamas at this juncture uh, and uh, make less likely uh, a rift or a fresh rift between Fatah and Hamas. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you. The six-month rotating presidency of the European Union has become less important in recent years, as most of the action has moved to Brussels and the increasingly regular meetings of EU leaders there. But Italy takes over the presidency this week as the European Commission is in transition, with José Manuel Barroso preparing to hand over to Jean-Claude Juncker, who has yet to assemble his new team of commissioners. Italy's Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi, is determined to use his country's presidency to influence the policy direction of the EU, particularly in how budget rules are applied to the member states. At just 39 years old, Mr Renzi is almost unique among European leaders in that he won the European Parliament elections, and after only four months in office, he's already being talked about as a counterweight in Europe to Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel. So what does Matteo Renzi want? And should the German Chancellor be worried? To find out, I'm joined from Rome by Paddy Agnew and from Berlin by Derek Scali. Paddy, Matteo Renzi came to power in a palace coup in February, but his Democratic Party triumphed in the European Parliament elections in May, and he remains hugely popular. What is it that the Italians like so much about him? Well, the thing might say that it's for the lack of any alternative, uh, but to be fair to Renzi, this is a country which is been governed by a gerontocracy and at the age of 39 to be in power is uh, remarkable for Italians and they like uh, his youth, his sense of uh, energy and um, the uh, in the wake of last week's EU summit there's a sense that uh, Italy has uh, with, with Renzi has managed to uh, reassume a, a central position in the European debate. There's a feeling in Italy, whether it's right or wrong, that he sort of, inverted commas, stood up to Angela Merkel, 
that he told her that, you know, here you are, you're not being flexible, you're not going to give us uh, regal room, uh, uh, you're not going to help out in the balancing of reforms and austerity. Uh, but let me recall in 2003, uh, Germany broke the rules several times because you were still paying for the unification of Germany. Uh, that That is... Uh, the metropolitan legend as to what he said to Angela Merkel last week, and uh, Italians uh, feel feel good about that. But they also there's also a very strong feeling with Italians, which is that after 20 years of Mr Berlusconi and uh, ineffective centre-left uh, opponents, Mr Berlusconi, uh, that uh, Matteo Renzi almost is Italy's last hope to get a, a serious act together. Now, writing in the Irish Times this week, Paddy, you suggested that although Mr Renzi is very good at talking the talk, he's yet to prove that he can walk the walk. Why? Well, this is a person who's got very, very little experience of government. Um, you know, he, he, he'd never even been in Parliament before, uh, let alone being in government, when, uh, until the day he became Prime Minister. Um, and his only experience of, of actually uh, being in office is that of the, uh, being mayor of Florence. Uh, Given that background, you, you're being entitled to say, well, actually, what does he know about some of these issues? Uh, what, what, is, what is clear, though, is, is that he's got um, a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of self-confidence, a huge amount of self-belief, uh, and that may well get him through a lot of problems. Now, what exactly is he looking for from the European Union? Well, I think he's looking for uh, fiscal flexibility. He's looking for a balance between reforms uh, and austerity. He's looking for uh, basically what's the so-called wriggle room on that area. He's looking for growth. He's looking for uh, measures on unemployment. On uh, He'll also be uh, putting a uh, big emphasis on the, the question of immigration, the extent to which Italy feels uh, left alone to deal with the, uh, the advance of, 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 of hordes from the developing world. Uh, and he, he, he also points out that Italy, uh, you know, contributes more than actually takes out from the EU. And it's time that uh, it, it made itself, um, basically, it's got more for its investment in the EU. Derek Scali in Berlin, is there any sign that Angela Merkel is willing to agree to any easing of these budget rules? No, in Berlin there's definitely a sense of deja vu all over again. Let's remember we've been here before. We had uh, Francois Hollande came to power promising an end to austerity and moving towards uh, stimulus. Um, that didn't go very far. We had uh, Mario Monti, we had Enrico Letta, and the Germans have said it's always the same thing, that they, they want these countries to succeed, but they say, show us the reforms first, and then we'll come with the concessions afterwards. So it's all a question of sequencing and uh, who's putting whose cart before whose horse. And um, and so the the sense really is that there's the tremendous goodwill towards Mr. Renzi, particularly from Chancellor Merkel. But she'd like to see um, exactly what he has in in, in mind in terms of reforms. Um, she's been a bit uh, scalded by uh, Silvio Berlusconi in the past, promising everything and not delivering. So in that sense, uh, she wants to see. Uh, she wants to see reforms, uh, and then there's some wriggle room definitely on the political interpretation of the rules. She said uh, in Brussels last week, she said with, with a clear conscience, the flexibility that we have in the existing rules hasn't been uh, exploited to the full extent, And um, but don't come to me looking for changes to the Stability and Growth Pack or the Six Pack and the Two Pack. All these rules that came were imposed in the crisis. She says uh, it would behove us all to uh, stick to this. We, we would not do the ourselves and uh, uh, our reputation in the financial markets any good if we started to unpick the rules uh, literally two or three years old. Well, Angela Merkel has been pretty consistent on all of this stuff for quite some time, but her vice-chancellor, the Social Democratic uh, leader, Sigmar Gabriel, he's been flirting with Mr. Renzi about the Stability Pact. How has this gone down at home? 
oh, this has gone down like a Led Zeppelin. And Merkel had to literally call him into line. And he came out after his visit to France, where he sort of signaled that he nodded and winked at the European socialists that he supported their efforts. But uh, when he came home, uh, Mami Merkel got him back into line. And he said, uh, I don't question the stability pact at all. Um, this is written in the ironclad in the German uh, Grand Coalition Programme for Government. I think the, the devil will be in the detail. And it's all about the political interpretation. And uh, the Germans are saying, well, look, uh, when, you, when you look at the so-called stability pact ceiling that your, your government spending cannot get above 3% of GDP, there already is some wriggle room there that isn't been exploited, that if, some, for instance, Italy wanted to build motorways or bridges, um, the, the money that Rome would have to stump up as a co-payment on the Brussels money doesn't necessarily have to be calculated. The Germans are also saying that even if they go beyond the 3% ceiling uh, and the member states are convinced that Mr. Renzi is doing good infrastructure investment, uh, the, the, the governments don't have to actually follow the Commission's uh, demand that they start uh, deficit procedures against Italy. So, so the Italians are saying, well, these are new uh, flexibility we have wrung from Angela Merkel last week. The Germans are saying that was always the case. This is old wine in new bottles. Um, so it really seems to be an argument of interpretation. And of course, Angela Merkel has in the past often claimed she never moved an inch and she actually proved to be, have moved in the past. But on the same uh, front, uh, Italian Prime Ministers have come and gone claiming that they had uh, won a, a stirring victory over Angela Merkel only for the facts uh, after the summit dust had uh, settled down. The facts actually looked quite the contrary. So Paddy, uh, Matteo Renzi has uh, stressed that he's not asking for the, the actual stability pact rules to be changed, but he is only really looking for the kind of flexibility that Derek has been describing there. So will that be enough for him to be able to achieve what he's trying Trying to do in terms of kickstarting the Italian economy? No, I don't. I mean, uh, Derek's absolutely right to say this has been promised before, and uh, or it's been claimed before by Italian prime ministers, and nothing's happened. I, I think the uh, Derek's also right to say that the senior European Union partners will be looking at Italy very closely, and will be looking. You know, it's very. It's all very good for uh, Mr. Renzi to claim he. He stood up to Angela Merkel, that sort of stuff. But they'll actually be looking at how, how and uh, and when he managed to implement any of his uh, ambitious program of constitutional, institutional, and electoral reform. Uh, on, until he actually delivers on, on those fronts, uh, you know, the jury has to remain out. And the implications, the the indications of what he's done so far in those areas, uh, is, is not good. You know, on, on the question of electoral reform, the electoral reform that he's come up with at the moment is, if anything, worse than the, the, the current highly undemocratic electoral legislation. Uh, in, in, you know, things like the, the Senate, Senate immunity has been uh, immunity from prosecution remains part of the package. Uh, there's no uh, question uh, the, the, the block list, the inability for the electorate to pick their own uh, parliamentarians, uh, that will not be available under the new legislation if it goes through as is at the moment. Uh, and therefore, that's one example. But there are uh, labour reform. Very little, if anything, has been touched there. So I would think that um, the senior partners will look at him and see, well, okay, what have you done? You've you've done a great deal of talking. You're a very good talker. We know that. But you actually delivered anything. And you know, you're talking about an economy which is. Uh, you know, practically 14 percent uh, unemployment, 2.1 million uh, trillion uh, national debt. That uh, ha- has been basically uh, 
stuck in the moment for the last 20 years. Uh, and, and it's hard to see anything that Mr Renzi's done so far is going to kickstart into action. Finally, Derek, we have in Matteo Renzi, the popular new kid on the block in Europe. You've got a new commission president, Jean-Claude Juncker, who it's pretty uh, widely believed was not exactly Angela Merkel's first choice. You've got a European parliament that has its tail up. Is there any sense in Berlin that this period of absolute dominance in Europe that Angela Merkel enjoyed as the sole uh, most uh, most powerful figure, that that's in any way coming to an end? Well, the, the notion of absolute power, it's always, a, it's, 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 it's whether it's absolute power or the perception of absolute power. And I think in the last two years uh, or three years, uh, Angela Merkel has been quite happy to allow people to think that Germany has absolute power. I mean, it always has had absolute power. It just it was never as uh, upfront uh, in your face about it, perhaps, as it was in the last few years. Um, but I think Angela Merkel is, has got very good, has always been very attuned to wind changing. I mean, when Hollande and Mr. Monti came in, she... She started talking the talk about uh, balancing austerity and stimulus. And uh, if she senses the wind is changing again, as it could be, Mr. Juncker is a very able man and he knows the EU even better than she does. Uh, I think she, you will notice slight changes. Uh, she will claim, of course, that she hasn't moved at all, but perhaps she will move. And perhaps Mr. Renzi is the man. He's just making the same arguments, but the times have changed. Um, but what we are witnessing is a very old, long debate in Europe. Do you stimulate first and reform later or do you reform first and stimulate later? This has been, we've been going around in circles with this over years. Perhaps we're going to see a shift on this and perhaps Mr. Renzi is the man to do it. But I would agree with, uh, I would agree with uh, Paddy, uh, deliver first and then ask for concessions. That always goes down well in Berlin. Derek Scali in Berlin and Paddy Agnew in Rome, thank you both. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The World Health Organization has called for drastic action to combat an outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus in West Africa, which has already killed almost 400 people. In Sierra Leone alone, at least 46 people have died from the virus, and the authorities there have warned citizens that it's a serious crime to shelter anyone infected with the virus. Fear, superstition and a lack of information about how the virus is spread is making the problem worse according to health experts, and making an effective response more difficult. I'm joined now from Sierra Leone by Fiona McLeisett, the country director there for Concern Worldwide. Fiona, what is the Ebola virus and how is it spread? Um, the Ebola virus, it is, it, it, as you mentioned, it is a virus. And the host for the Ebola virus, it's in a fruit bat, um, or one of the wild animals that, um, that is eaten wide, widely here in, in West Africa. Um, it's a severely infectious disease, but it's also a disease that can be prevented. Now... And, uh, and so, and so, once you once you do uh, contract this disease, how does it affect people? Okay, initially, people present with diarrhea and vomiting, and um, a sore throat, uh, a spike in temperature, and then later, um, people people um, have, get profuse bleeding, and there's a breakdown of the internal organs. So it's a very very serious illness, and uh, as you see, it's highly contagious particularly in the later stages um, of the infection. Now, there have been outbreaks of Ebola in the past. How does this current outbreak in West Africa compare with previous ones? Well, the first outbreak was in DRC uh, in 1976. And, but this particular case is the worst 
case, it's the worst incident recorded because it's it's regional. It has a regional dimension. It is in Guinea, Liberia, and uh, first cases, confirmed cases, on the 26th of um, May this year. And to date, as you mentioned in the introduction, over 400 people have died um, as a result of this outbreak or epidemic. And to date, actually, in Sierra Leone, we've had 63 confirmed deaths and we have um, 191 confirmed cases. Um, there are 46 cases currently being treated in, in Kenema and then others in Kailahun. So it's really, really serious, the fact that um, it's not only country-specific, but it also has a regional dimension. And within the country here as well, it's spread to, to different districts which is very alarming. What has been the official response uh, of the governments in the countries that you mentioned? Um, well, here in Sierra Leone, the government um, did lead on response in the initial stages when there were confirmed cases in the region. Um, there was quite a lot done on the sensitisation. There was some prepar preparation done. Um, but, I mean, to put it into context, Sierra Leone has already very overstretched um, health services. Um, it already has um, weakened structures, very little resilience. And the fact that, you know, you have this major shock then coming into the system, um, this, the facilities and the service is completely overwhelmed. For any country to be able to, um, to, be able to respond to such a crisis, it's, it's very, very challenging. But particularly in a, in a country where, where there's poor resilience within the, within the health care infrastructure and, you know, limited resources and very, very little in terms of preparedness. And again, all the health facilities need to set up an isolation unit for the intern stage and then patients, once confirmed, they're transferred to one main unit um, in Kenema District, which had already been set up um, in response to Lassa fever, which is another hemorrhagic um, condition. How big, uh, Fiona, how big a problem is fear and superstition when it comes to trying to deal with this problem? Well, it's a major uh, issue, Dennis. Um, there was first a complete denial, and I mean, that's still a challenge for agencies, including for concern. We're doing quite massive awareness raising and sensitization of the population. There was basically a denial and then there was a lot of misconceptions in how the disease was actually, what it was and how it was spread. Um, you know, there was misconceptions about that it was related to magic and that um, it was being even spread by, um, by government or by, by international community. So um, there was a lot of misconceptions um, about the illness, um, but particularly that it was people were in denial. So that's why the, the focus on the awareness raising and sensitisation is hugely important to work with local communities within the, the areas we're already working in and also working with key stakeholders, for example, the religious leaders, the traditional um, healers have a, a high status within the community. They're the ones that people turn to when they have 
when they have problems, you know, rather than sometimes the conventional um, health system. Fiona McLeish, Country Director of Concern Worldwide in Sierra Leone, thank you for joining us. And you can find out more about Concern's work at concern.net. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about all our stories on irishtimes.com and contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.